you look at the game last night and you think to yourself, this Manchester City team are going to be the first Premier League team to score 10 goals in a match. It is going to happen. We are going to reach that high water mark. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Yeah, it is time for the Sunday paper review uh, with Timmy McCarthy and Kieran Cunningham from the Irish Daily Star this morning, the last Sunday before Christmas, and unfortunately, for about two years now, it's still going on. We're talking about the vaccines, we're talking about COVID, and we're talking about potential uh, disruption in terms of football and in terms of other sports, particularly, obviously, in football uh, in Britain, um, with games called off um, left, right, and centre this weekend. We'll talk about Andy Friends Connacht as well. They're in charge. They're in in action, obviously, later on today. We'll talk about the club championships and Gaelic games, and we'll talk about what's in the papers. Some talk about Stephen Kenny as well, and uh, what's going on in the FEI. Um, so, before we get to the lads, we'll just start with. Uh, the Sunday Times and uh, this obviously features Arsenal's victory over a decimated Leeds yesterday Leeds having a 15 year old on the bench and this is going to be one of the key things we're going to talk about here refuse jab and face punishment players told and that's um, a constant theme sort of throughout the papers this morning the Irish Mail sideline the unvaxxed jab sceptics could be segregated and uh, it does feel like there is a little bit of sort of anger now uh, seeping into the discourse uh, in terms of those that are not vaccinated and in some of the papers as well there are comparisons between the vaccinated figures uh, in England compared to some of the other big leagues on the continent Sun Sports no jab no job flack over anti-vax players uh, and uh, it's the same theme really throughout many of the papers gives a jab which obviously you gotta like uh, that is in the people and lonely this Christmas the last two teams standing Arsenal uh, with their 4-1 win over Leeds uh, I thought it'd be worth putting this one in we will talk about um, one of the articles in the Observer but just at the back there's actually an ad here get boosted now from the NHS so we uh, we thought we'd put that in as well because they're, they're definitely up in the ante uh, in Britain Sunday Mirror cancel Xmas um, football's coronavirus crisis fans furious at Villa over late call off and that was a game obviously that was called off two hours before kick off yesterday and uh, we have the Irish Independent here as well Klopp will refuse to sign unvaccinated players. Only those jabbed will be considered by Liverpool boss. So I guess uh, the vaccine and uh, the unvaccinated players and all that is the best place to start. Kieran Cunningham, how are you? I'm not too bad, Johnny. Not too bad. Um, dread, dreading COVID talk, to be honest. So I would hope to keep it fairly brief because I think if I was um, if I was listening to somebody else coming on the review and this was one of the main subjects, I think I'd switch off fairly quickly because I think there's there's a huge amount of fatigue around it, but it doesn't mean it's not important and significant. But uh, I, I just think people want to get on with it now. They just want to get on with their lives as best they can, you know, put into the details of it. Wearies them. I think one of the there's a lot across the papers that the mail have been very strong. And basically, players should be told to vaccinate now. They've done about six or seven pages of kind of a campaign. And Klopp is very good on this in, in, in breaking down, you know, the. What's involved if you have an unvaccinated player? Like, basically, they have to eat separately. They have to have their separate dressing room. You know, there's a lot of hassle. That's why he's saying he wouldn't sign an unvaccinated player. And he's been very vocal from the start uh, that, you know, he wanted everybody vaccinated. And um, uh, Tommy Conlon's piece, I think, is interesting to Sunday depend because he 
he goes into you know the effect this could have on the, on the season because what I actually think Klopp in a way as well is very very keen for no postponements because of the Liverpool situation because they're going to lose players to AFCON next month so if they have a few matches refixed for January you know it could, could effectively put them out of the title race like if they're you know they're if they have, you know, go in against uh, Tottenham without Salah, Mane, Kaita, along with whatever other players might be available at the time. So, um, I, I can see, I can see this. There's, there's different strands to it. Like, I'd be curious about Timmy because Timmy's there isn't that much sport on in Ireland at the moment, but basketball is on. And basketball's a nighttime sport, so that's one that's going to be very much affected by the restrictions. So, I'd be curious on Timmy's take around that. Yeah, Timmy, I suppose we're a little bit behind Britain, I think, in terms of the onset of the virus. Um, the League of Ireland campaign has ended um, and obviously a lot of the, the, the games are outdoors and so far, even in, in, in some of the more high-profile Gaelic games, we've, we've done okay. But how has it been like in the basketball front? Well, today it's been, it's been okay. Obviously, Omicron uh, vi- um, the virus is going to be a problem. I think there's no doubts in that. So... Uh, today the games have gone on you know people have worn masks that have elected wore masks and stuff and it's gone fine you know the National League has carried on up to now Ballancolly are undefeated in, in the Super League so you know they won yesterday so it's gone fine in, in, in that sense but there's no doubt that this new strain um, is going to pose challenges then. and you know there's, when you look at you know what Kieran was on about the, the papers and you know, the, the UK situation which seems to be I, I was on with a client of mine in London the other day and he said basically it's out of control. He said COVID is out of control in London. He says no matter where you go now, Tim, in London, he says, you know, you, you're in real danger if you get COVID. So it's it's a big challenge for all sport organisations. For basketball, it's a challenge because it's indoor, obviously, so it has more implications in, in a basketball sense. But there's no doubt that all of this, you know, um, is a long time we're, we're dealing with COVID. But being unvaccinated is definitely a problem. There's no doubt in that. Obviously, if you're vaccinated, you can still pick up the virus. But it, it looks like that's you know that the unvaccinated situation is becoming a bigger focus in the UK, uh, particularly in, in, in the football and in, in, in the Premiership. I thought Oliver Paul's um, paper, you know, piece was fa- fascinating in the Mail and Sun. I just thought was that the statistics were around the world interesting. That 98% of the Italians. Uh, in the early league of vaccinated and 92% um, in, in Spain and in Germany. So I thought that was very interesting, where it's 60% uh, in the UK. I also thought he made the point about rumours, t- you know, that people believe that Christian Eriksen, you know, suffered a heart issue because of being vaccinated. Um, and I just thought he laid it out very clearly that at the end of the day, his headline is, forget the cranks and the fools. It's time for vaccine for players to wake up and realise they owe it to the game, the fans, and the vulnerable to get to the jab. The big thing about the, the COVID situation in the Premiership for me is, if you're a journalist, you have to be happy. You have to have a COVID pass to get in. Yeah. If you're walking in the ground, you have to have a COVID pass to get in. Mm. And yet, if you're a player, you know, a professional, you don't. So I just think there's a bit of inconsistency. And obviously, the Germans have have a legal basis where they can actually, and they've done that in Bayern Munich. They don't stop people's wages if they get sick because of being unvaccinated. The UK doesn't have that flexibility. But if, if, if people got vaccinated, I know it's an individual choice, and I know there's, di- there's different reasons, but the science is telling us that if you get vaccinated, um, your chance of spreading it is less, and your chance of getting sick, more sick than uh, with the vaccination, and world vaccination is also less. So, you know, if the Premiership wants to go on, I'm a Chelsea fan, so they have a World Club Championship in February. They're going through an awful period at the moment, and, you know, they're four or six six players now with COVID. So 
they don't want any loud jams. Trump, as Kieran said, doesn't want a loud jam because of the affiliation. So, um, but the reality is the Premiership right now is in, the, in danger of being a substandard product if you have teams going out with, you know, with reserve players and, and underage players because of COVID. So the risk is that, you know, this will become worse before it gets better. If Omicron is, is telling us anything and the, the science is telling us it's more transmissible, it means there's more problems coming down the line for the Premiership yeah. and, you know, that's yeah. the reality. And Kieran, this is the piece, this is a Timmy reference there. It is in the um, Irish Mail on Sunday. Um, and it just, I guess, it in, in fairly stark terms 98% vaccinated in Serie A, La Liga 92%, and uh, 68% in Britain. And I mean, the mind does go a bit back to Callum Robinson when he scored that goal yeah. uh, in, in Azerbaijan and he kind of put his, cupped his uh, hands up to the crowd. and you know, Callum Robinson was probably a little bit unfortunate in the sense that he was catapulted into the storm that week. But, you know, this issue hasn't gone away. And I, to my mind, Premier League players have a, have a lot to answer for here, those that are resolutely unvaccinated. I, I do. I think they have a moral responsibility, especially when you look at their... Uh, I know people don't like often when you bring up salaries, but these guys are paid so well. And, like, it's been a very, very difficult time for supporters. And You know, you looked yesterday... Um, the game was called off with two hours to go, and supporters would already have already spent a lot of money. In a, you know, car tickets are getting to that game, or you know, going for lunch before that game, or whatever their travel, etc. And, and we're supposed often taken for granted. And I think players have a responsibility to them, and for family reasons, I've spent a lot of this year in Donegal, and often go out walking. And I was walking around an old graveyard uh, near where we live, and uh, it really struck me. You know, just looking at the gravestones, how many people in that graveyard died young? Yeah. And what was the what was the reason? Spanish flu, TB, and smallpox. They were mass killers, right? And largely, they were eradicated because of vaccination. You know, but there's all these cranks now, as Oliver Holt says, pushing this and pushing this about footballers supposedly collapsing because they're taking vaccine, even though it's complete nonsense. Like it's been it's been disproved by everybody, but they're more inclined to believe a tweet from Nicki Minaj. Uh, saying that your testicles explode if you take the vaccine rather than actual scientists and that's an issue you can feel as well Timmy a little bit of anger kind of seeping in now that um, you know I guess the clubs have gotten away with this over the last you know the, the, the variant wasn't quite as bad as it is now and is going to be over the last month or two but I mean it's a bit of a shit show in England at the moment to be fair absolutely and I think you you see more anger you know from supporters I think you know what happened just uh, the Aston situation two hours before the game is an example of what could happen going forward and I also you know to just develop Kieran's point a bit these are highly paid professionals mm. and if, if you're unvaccinated in that environment and you create an environment where other people get COVID because you've been unvaccinated that's a real issue and I just think that the COVID isn't gone away and it won't go away for a long time okay the only defence we have against it is a vaccination and boosters. That's the only defense we have. We can we can criticize everything we want, but that is really the only defense we have against COVID. Uh, we have no other defense. So what we've got to do is basically we've got to make sure that you know we get as many people vaccinated as possible. And then if you know if you're unvaccinated, I believe you know in the UK it's going to be a real problem. Now legally they can't do anything contractually, but I do believe that the the, the anger of the fans and um, and all the players within the setup. So if you're, I mean, imagine if you're a professional team and one person decides not to get vaccinated and, and contacts COVID and spreads it amongst the players. And even though you may not be as sick as you would have been if you were unvaccinated, you're still not able to play because you have to self-isolate for 10 days and, and depending on the impact. I mean, they talked in, in this article about um, the Joshua Kimmich 
um, mm. who is unvaccinated and has now a lung problem because of it, right? And is really struggling and, you know, could be out for a long, another extended period because of this lung problem that has developed as a result of contracting COVID. So I do believe there'll be anger amongst the fans. I mean, look, this time of the year, you've had so many games normally around Christmas, you know, and um, that right now is under threat. You know, I mean, you've the Brentford manager asking to, for the thing to be cancelled, you know, for two weeks this time settled on. But two weeks won't change this. That's the reality we've got to be, be clear about it. Two weeks won't change this. And as Kieran talked about the graveyard and Benny Gold, you know, what, what, what's, what, what was the defence against those illnesses was vaccination. And that's the only defence we have. And I just thought that out of a hold. I also thought Rod Draper was interesting in, in, the, ne- in, the, in the next page, 76 and 77, in the Mail on Sunday, um, when he, he, he sort of, there was a point about how Premier League clubs measure up. But in the end of it, a little footnote, he says, each Premier League club was asked by this newspaper about the vaccinate, vaccination status of their players. Two of them told us that the majority of their players had been vaccinated. Ten said they could not disclose confidential medical information and eight didn't respond. <laughs> and I thought that was very telling. Mm. And of 20 clubs asked, only two gave some kind of answer, okay, and 18 gave no answer. And if that's the mindset of the 18 clubs, then I think the Premier League is in for a tough period. Of yeah, Klopp's been very good on this as well. I think, like, the you know, the whole kind of secrecy about who may or may not have COVID is, is at this stage, is quite bizarre. Um, I felt it, to be honest now, I think the mainstream media, particularly over the last four months, like, the fascination and the constant COVID coverage for me is, is almost lazy journalism at this stage because there's an awful lot going on in the world and this has changed now with the Omicron variant and obviously all the cancellations. But I've, I've made an executive decision that we're not talking about COVID for the rest of the paper review we're going to get on to something else because there are lots of other things in the paper we'll start with you Karen. Um we'll let you start wherever obviously lots of chat about Stephen Kenny the ongoing contract situation there um, very good interview with Andy Friend as well featuring um among the papers this morning, I thought Dermot Crow on some of the um, less kind of favourable stuff that was on the pitch in GA and the uh, Sunday end it was very interesting as well. Where would you like to start? Uh, maybe with the Dermot Crow piece, actually. This was interesting. Because, yeah, and I'll tell you a bit why. Because one thing that annoys me about uh, coverage of club GA is that I think it's overly sentimental. You know, that often is held up as, you know, the, you know, Joe Brawley is very guilty of this, but there's a lot of others, you know, there's, there's held up as the, an example of all that is good about sport. Yeah. Whereas, whereas the county game gets a kicking, you know. And I think there were, between Camogie and Gaelic football, I think there were four live games on yesterday on TV, between RT and TG Car. But I didn't sit and watch the full game in any of them, but I had them on the background and it was bits and pieces. And the bits I watched now, I saw three different players in different games go down having been taken a knock on the arm or their chest but they went down holding their, their faces and this, this is, is something this is the headline here isn't? yeah sorry to yeah. interrupt here now purveyors yeah. of dark ask risk uh, shaming their communities and we will give flattering favourable coverage and sentimental coverage to the club game as well but this is a point that is is uh, obviously Dermot was making that there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on that is the dark arts and you could see some yesterday as well yeah, like he goes into basically simulation with just getting at or, or diving. But uh, uh, and this is this happens in virtually every game you, ha- you watch, you know, at any level now. And partly it's, it's incredibly cynical because it's playing on the fear around head injuries. Because head injuries and the danger of concussion have got so much publicity that if you go down holding your head or your face, the referee straight away, they've heard so much about this. You know, they're under pressure to make a decision. 
you know, to show a card or, you know, give a free whatever. And oftentimes it's not contact on the head at all. And also, you know, Dermot gets into sledging, how, you know, sledging has just become such a part of the GA club level as well as the county game. And uh, I think it's important to, to highlight this stuff around club because, like, I know some of the stories around clubs this year about the money that's been taken by some really mediocre coaches and the way they've messed clubs around. The great white clubs, elephant of the Gaelic Games. Yeah. A club, it's actually, I think it's a far bigger problem at club level than county level. And I get really sick now the way the club game is held up. Like the, There are awful games at club level as well as at county level. There is a, the terrible cynicism at club level as well as county level. Like it's no, it's no exemplar. It's just, it's human beings and human beings are flawed and there's a thought at club level as at any other level. It's a, it's a worthwhile piece, Big Jeremy. Yeah, he says uh, he says here, Timmy. Already, we have had to deal with the plague of moronic sledging, and um, I couldn't. Like, this is one thing I hate more in in sports and Gaelic games, particularly bad as sledging. I think it's just so abhorrent. Simulation is part of that same dark web of disease. In a recent hurling championship match in the capital, one county player had his marker spend his time virtually nose to nose shouting abuse in his face while the ball was of little relevance to him. And unfortunately, this is county or club, Timmy, this is uh, reality. Yeah, I, I, I believe the difference that is happening on Jay is that, you know, and one time Jay has said in, in a high moral ground, he said, it's only soccer players do that, particularly foreign soccer players. That has now been quashed because not just at club level, but at inter-county level, this is going on. He made one point, you know, just above that point you just followed. Thankfully, there appears to be a general abhorrence of this kind of practice in jail. I can't see that that's been a factual statement mm. because if it's going on at club level and at inter-county level, and it's been seen as, as you know, a way of winning a game, a way of, you know, getting a guy sent off or a way of getting freeze well then it, 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 it's not being stamped out because if it was being stamped out by the managers and the coaches it wouldn't happen so you know I don't believe there's a general abhorrence he also talked about the Aidan Manny instant with Donnick O'Connor um, when he got the Corkman sent off in 2008 so this has been building for a while in GA and I don't believe the GA you know family can anymore sit down and say we don't do this you know that you know this is just for you know soccer I mean I was coaching St. Bridges here in Roscommon last year when they won the senior county football and there was times I'd say to the players all the time okay don't get sucked in okay don't be reacting to what these guys are doing because that's what they want you know and Kieran's point about watching the games yesterday again I, I was watching some of them yesterday and guys getting you know belts in the chest and holding their face you know it, it, it's just becoming more common and the sad thing is there's no need for it okay because we have this fantastic you know game hauling and football and you know, and when the best clubs play and the best counties play, it's exceptional to watch it in that sense. I thought the Shell Miller's game yesterday with Nace was fantastic for uh, TV viewing. You know, mm. standard disapproval at the end when players got caught up in extra time. But I just thought it was great tension and great football. But the sad thing is that there is dark arts now common practice in GA as it is in soccer and other sports. Yeah. And that's the sad thing that we've come to realize. And we have to accept it and then we have to deal with it and get rid of it. And Kieran, I guess, like the whole, well, the main premise of the article is the fact that two McGraths were sent off in Lockmore Castellani, Bally Gunner, and there was a lot of ambiguity about the rights and the wrongs of both sending offs. Yeah, that's it, yeah. Uh, yeah, he goes into that, you know, that... Um, 
Yeah, he's careful. But basically, he says, no, the point Dermot makes is each player must answer to his or her own conscience, but management teams can't wash their hands either. Players are accountable for their own actions, but in Ballon d'Honor, there are to be misgivings about what happened. In the GA, however, the default position is to defend your own and find some way of excusing it. But the other thing, uh, point there, uh, Johnny, is that um, it's often planned, this kind of thing. Yeah. You know, like. Premeditated. Uh, w- w- yeah, premeditated. Like, w- w- you go back to, you know, the Johnny Gall, Jim McGuinness period. And um, when Kevin Cassidy's book, um, or, you know, his contribution to Declan Vogue's book, This Is Our Year, one of the things that ruffled a lot of feathers in the Johnny Gall camp was him saying that the team meeting, you know, a senior player showed them clips of American football sledging and cynical play and saying, we have to get like this. You know, this is the way we have to go. So teams actually go out to be more cynical. You know, it's been part of the GA for quite a while now. But you know, people don't like it being highlighted. Sledging needs to be called out, though, doesn't it? By individual players. Like I've heard absolute horror stories about, like, yeah. you know, basically lads who've lost brothers, we'll say, for argument's sake, to suicide. And this being brought up in the Gaelic pitch, I would have no problem whatsoever in bringing that out straight to the media and saying, this is why I, what, what I had to deal with, and that's why I actually walked off the pitch on that occasion. Yeah. Uh, it's going back to the original point from what I've heard sledging is often far worse at club level than county level Mm. and maybe that's because there's more intimate knowledge that people know they know they know their opponents and their family and their backgrounds a lot better than they might at county level but I've heard some you know as you say some absolutely atrocious stories at club level Mm. and stuff that just left uh Left ended up having huge bad feeling between clubs that has lingered for a long, long time. You know, mm. people have crossed the lines, but you know, how do you stop that? Like, you have to have a willingness from the top, as Dermot says, management teams have come into play there. You have a strong manager and say, you know, says to a player, You're not playing on my team if you do stuff like that. Mm. But what managers are strong enough to do that? We're going to stay with Gaelic Games because this is a lot happier of a of a story and an article and it's Klopp Alakala's um, great uh, story in Leinster obviously in the final in the Leinster Club final today um, and this is an article with uh, Dennis Walsh in the Sunday Times and if I just flick the page over here as well it features one of the local kind of heroes uh, of the parish and uh, he is called Mohammed Ashak he runs the only shop in Balakala. he left Pakistan for Ireland four and a half years ago and landed in Liege 12 months later a few hundred than 200, fewer than 200 people live in the village but there are a couple of hundred more in the hinterland and those numbers add up to a viable business how can you capture goodwill in the number Ishak is a barber too and Stephen Picky Maher is a regular in his chair and it talks about how Ishak then gets into hurling and you know the idea of um, a guy ending up in rural Leash uh, in Pakistan from, coming from Pakistan Timmy and uh, being part of this story I think is lovely I think it's a brilliant story, and I think that Dennis Walsh captured, you know, the good things about the GA family and the GA environment in this story. From Mohammed, you know, as you say, running the only shop, um, but also I, I love the part about bloodlines, and you know that Picky's mom does the catering, his cousin is the fullback, his brother's the selector, and their sister's the chairman of the club. So this actually highlights the great things that we have in GA in our, you know, that. You know, small clubs can, can dream big. Obviously, they have a big challenge ahead in play in that sense. But, you know, I mean, they've won their first two games in Leinster in a long time. I just thought the way he, he, he set it out basically just sort of encapsulates the good things that are there in, in GA. And, you know, like, will Clock Ballet Calais, you know, get through it? It's hard, to, it's hard to see it against Bally Hill. But irrespective of the results today, you know, their journey is about the community, it's about families. 
it also shows, you know, Kim's point earlier about the sledging, the intimacy on the positive side is highlighted in this article about, you know, it is brothers, sisters, cousins, you know, um, shopkeepers, barbers, you know. It is just about everyone being together for a period of time and, and bringing the whole community along. And I really enjoyed reading it. I really enjoyed reading it. I thought it was interesting, um, the, the point about the sister Una, who's chairman of the club. Mm. Her dad had, it says her dad had performed the role many years ago, but... Um, Two clubs have elected woman to the position of chairman, and she's in 28 or 29. So, you know, she said it was daunting, okay? But she's in it now, and she's really excited about it. I just thought to myself, you know, yeah, this is this is what was great about GA the local club, you know, families, friends, and neighbors uh, just coming together and enjoying the journey. And the journey at the moment has taken them to the Leinster final, and we wish them well today for that. So. Yeah, and I don't know, the the amount of uh, immigrants from Pakistan that I meet in Dublin in my various walks of life and to a man and woman, how incredibly friendly and humble they are. And I'm sure it's uh, the benefit of that small parish that's in this uh, Leinster final today that um, they have somebody um, from that part of the world uh, in with the only shop. And the the only shop in the parish, a lot of these places uh, don't have many shops going and that will be a hub of activity, I'm sure, over the next week as well. We're going to stay with the Sunday Times, uh, Kieran, as well. Just you, you mentioned... David Walsh's article about uh, the oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. a dramatic conclusion to the Formula One last weekend. Um, this obviously took place in Abu Dhabi. We might go from there to talk about um, some of the Middle Eastern interests in football today. The, the Gulf Derby, as it's being called, between uh, Man City and Newcastle. But uh, David Walsh, this was an unbelievable end to the campaign. Yeah. Um, now I have to say. Uh, Full disclosure, I didn't watch it because... Neither uh, did I. No, I was watching the European Cross-Country Championships in athletics because basically I'm more interested, far more interested in athletics than Formula One. I know a couple of the athletes, I know a couple of the coaches, so I was, and it was on Irish soil, so I was, I was curious about the whole event and what it would be like. It was brilliant, you know, 7,000 people there. It was an 8-euro win, free for kids, so mm. it, was, it was a great a, a great day, but uh, like I've read about it since and seen, you know, seen replays of how it ended. And I have a lot of problems with Formula One. Like if you look at the last three Grand Prix, Johnny, of the season, took place in Saudi Arabia, Abu Dhabi, and Qatar. What's your point, Kieran? What's your point? It's, 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 a sport, it's, it's, it's the ultimate in sports watching. Yeah, events, you know, and it's a strange, it's a strange sport because it, it reminds me of the, very much of the Celtic Tiger years. You know. Uh, can I add in another dodgy capital there in the shape of Baku the last time I was there I was at basically um, outside this opulent Hilton Hotel Dundalk were playing a match over there and just below me was uh, basically the road where the Formula 1 took place uh, sports washing going all over that part of the world essentially yeah yeah absolutely but uh, you know just going uh, like there was a time when Formula 1 was massive here like when I started out in the star two of our corners were Eddie Jordan and Eddie Irvine um, you know, uh, no, the idea now that you would be given, and they used to get two pages each of their columns, but the idea now you'd be given that bunch of space to Formula One columnist in Ireland is unthinkable, but they were very much at the forefront of the sport at the time. And I think, you know, there was money washing around Ireland. It was a Celtic Tiger sport. And I remember, um, I never got it. And I remember people saying to me, you have to go to a Grand Prix to get it. And eventually a junket came along and I was offered a free trip. And if you Junkets don't trip, happen in journalism anymore. No, no, they don't. <laughs> and especially this kind, I'll tell you about this one. And they say if you're offered, uh, you know, if you're offered, if you go to a Grand Prix, the one you should go to is Monaco because, you know, it's not a track. It's through the streets. It's more dramatic, etc. 
so this was around 20 years ago or you know either late 90s or early 90s and it was uh it was the most one of the most boring sport events i was ever <laughs> at but like i was just maybe i was just unlucky but like this, the car started off in the grid and nothing changed till they finished in the same order timmy's no, smiling there i think he wanted to go yeah there wasn't one overtake but i'll tell you why he won't tell me why he wanted to go so but it was a fascinating experience because you got a kind of a a look at the super wealthy in this really strange world they live in because there was all these yachts back park, um, you know uh, uh, moored in the marina and they had parties on board for the Grand Prix so I had a pair of binoculars and I was just looking I spent most of the time looking at the parties and the yachts and like wondering about these people but the other thing it was some sponsor that took us over took a few journalists over to Monaco uh, to Monte Carlo and um all the sponsors of motorhomes, like each of the t- teams would have a motorhome and a reception before. And so we were all out the night before, and there was a load of Irish hacks, pretty dishevelled and wearing not exactly designer gear, I would say. And who 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 walks into the motorhome? Kate Moss and Naomi Campbell. <laughs> Nothing dishevelled about that pair. No, and that's just such a different world, and it's still got that that kind of uh, cachet. Like I do, I, I, I said this flippantly before, but I actually think there's a greater truth in it. There's a lot of people who adore Formula One that don't really like sport, but they love the, the, you know, the whole thing about Formula One. And David Walsh's piece basically is about how Formula One manipulates audiences and how they use the Netflix series uh, Drive to Survive to build his popularity. And even, even though it's a dishonest documentary, like he goes into the way it's edited. Like there's things, you know, there's dialogue from one scene that are transposed into another scene to make it more dramatic. Mm. And things are shown out as sequence, etc. And that's very interesting because, you know, of the claims that basically the ending of this season was manipulated too to make it more dramatic and make it more popular. And that's a, you know, that's something that would make you question a sport and would make me question it anyway. Timmy, you weren't in Monaco with Kate Naomi. <laughs> well, what, the reason I'm smiling is that. Uh, I had to get a junk into Monaco two weeks before the Grand Prix many years ago in that sense. Uh, and uh, we actually got to drive the street in a car. So in a souped-up car, we actually got to drive the track. And that was a brilliant experience because you kind of had the impression that you were a, a Formula One driver for a time. But I never got to a, a social event where Kate Moss and the other family got in. So obviously that was for the high affluent people from the star and, and their cohort and that sense. But what, what was interesting, I didn't watch the, the Formula One race, but I saw the last lap. I just flicked that movie and there was the safety car was going on. I said, this is interesting. And then there was a the big discussion about will they let cars lap. So for that three, for the last 3.4 miles was what I probably saw, which is the lap. I really enjoyed it, just from the point of view. And the fact that Hamilton got beaten or Stafford won probably made it more enjoyable in the context of, of the event. But look, it's it, it's for the super wealthy. It, it's like the, you know, the, the, the yacht around the world yacht races. This is for the super, super wealthy in that sense, right? And I've never seen a Formula One event uh, live. Um, but I think you can dip in and out. I think David Walsh's point, though, was a bigger point, though, about that. You know, um, sometimes when you see stuff, not just on Netflix, as he called it on Netflix, about, you know, Drive to Survive, don't always believe everything that you see because it is edited. They are, they are putting tips into different situations. They are, I mean, he talked about Lewis Hamilton saying it's a little scary, it makes you feel vulnerable. But he was actually talking about catching COVID, not about an accident that, mm. you know, that had taken place. So I think his point was that sometimes, you know, um, you know, the big thing here is Formula One doesn't care about the fact that Netflix didn't give an authentic documentary they gave you know a, a, 
a cinematic documentary which, which was which was last off. But um, yeah, I, it, I, it is, sorry for cutting across you very quickly though, Tim. It is quite interesting from a journalistic point of view because if you took uh, if you took quotes out of context to that extent in the newspaper, mm-hmm. you would be in big trouble. Or you'd be the leader of uh, the UK at the moment. <laughs> for however long that would be but anyway yeah. no but you're Kieran, but you're right the, the point is that it was accepted there, there was no mm. issue from, from forward one which is what David was yeah because said. I think yeah. that's what David get into in the end it's sports entertainment as much as, as sports like it, and they, like there's a very interesting part on that about Rory McIlroy was asked about this on the No Laying Up podcast and he was asked if golf was an, an entertainment sport a participation sport and uh, the presenter Chris Solomon said are you not in a huge hurry to turn golf into F1 and McElroy said oh my gosh no not after last week Netflix is about to make a documentary of the PGA Tour and that'll be a wonderful thing and great for the profile of some of the players however what happened on Sunday in F1 is that the narrative was more important than the result that can never happen in golf a story can never be more important than the actual mm. result and I think there was there did seem to be an attempt to create a story, mm. which which is it's, it's fascinating as well because the documentary opened up so many people to the sport and I guess the possibilities of what Netflix documentaries can do. But if we just stay with the Middle East and then we might go back to the Sunday Times, I I'm not sure if either of you I, I sent this on as you may not have had a chance to read it, but Jonathan Wilson he's a really really good journalist in the Observer and he's just talking about. Um, the Gulf Derby today, effectively, City meet Newcastle. It's worth asking, what is the price of a supporter's soul? And the article itself concludes with, welcome to modern football. It stinks, but we need it. And he says, but so far we have uh, retreated into self-absorbed tribalism that fans welcome their distant overlords despite their hideous human rights record because they promise high-class football. The price for fans' soul, question mark, the appointment of Eddie Howe and a whiff of James Tarkowski. The only way for an outsider club to bridge the gap is by the invention of a sugar daddy and so they are welcomed as implausible anti-capitalist disruptors even if they have bone saws in their pockets. So, so unpalatable is the present crop of owners that the hedge fund guys have come to seem like the good guys. It's enough to make you yearn for the cynical hauliers and scrap metal dealers of old. And um, I don't know, Timmy, this is something that, that often I certainly think about anyway. And as much as Galway United actually were linked with the Saudi takeover in the past, they, I, I just can't really see how if you're a Man City fan or a Newcastle fan, that really what is happening there would mean as much to you as when you were fans, say, 15, 20 years ago. It means nothing. I mean, Newcastle fans, I was actually way recently and I met a couple of Newcastle fans um, two, a couple, really nice couple, very genuine people thrilled to be getting more money. Just absolutely thrilled to be getting more money. Is there all any morality at all though then? Like, do you know? No, no, they had no morality. I mean, yeah, they, were, they were probably very moral people but in this conversation, they just said, you know, that um, they want money and they want to buy the best players and they want to win titles. And if you look at Man City, and Man United, and you know, all, all, like all the all the clubs that have, have now investors, overseas investors, and we sometimes pigeonhole investors because obviously the two clubs that Jonathan Wilson talked about, the City and, and, and Newcastle, um, have Middle Eastern owners, right? But you know, there's American owners, there's Russian owners, there's you know, there's a, well, a raft of different owners. Fans want their teams to win, and, and the sad thing in in the in the Premiership is money dicta- dictates an awful lot of how people can win. That's the big thing. One thing I really like about basketball in, in, in the NBA, they have a draft system. I think mm. it's a system. And, and they have a salary cap. So so they control the situation. Now, obviously, the owners want to make money and, and all that. But basically, the draft works is that 
every year, the team who finished with the worst record get the best pick of, of the first New York Times. That's the way it works. Because they want the league to have some bit of a quality in that thing. And mm. then they have a salary cap as well. Man City fans and Newcastle fans will get that game today. City obviously are the best team in the country at the moment. Um, so they'll be there, you know, with the benefits of the, the spoils that they've been over the last number of years. And Newcastle fans will be at the game saying, this will be us in the future because we have this money. Morality is not a part of it. Yeah. Um, Irrelevant. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because I was talking about, you know, the, the various taxi drivers you meet in Dublin and so many I meet from Pakistan and from India and uh, I met an Albanian taxi driver the other day, Kieran, and he was I was talking about the three Albanian um, sons of Albanians that were playing for yeah. the Ireland Under-17 team last year, Kevin Zeffi notably, um, but he, he got into a conversation with me, he said, oh, I've just given up on football, it's just far too much money, I'm fed up with it, like I've no interest anymore. Like, Where is the Premier League going with this? Because like you have, as you say, Manchester United are run by the Glazers effectively to make money and to kill off the debts and so forth, Man City are run as a sports washing, ep- uh, you know, basically operation from the Middle East, Newcastle don't get me started, like where are we going with this? Where the, the local fans really become less and less relevant. Yeah. And it goes far beyond the Premier League, obviously. Uh, what happens a year's time? It's a year, uh, it will be one year from yesterday to what? Do you know? Mm. What happens a year ago? Uh, just a year. Uh, a year's time minus one day is the World Cup final. Qatar. Oh yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah, in a year to come. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait for it. Yeah, yeah. Eight stadia in a country of like two million people built with people dying to build them, basically. Yeah. But isn't it incredible? Like, we're all, you know, winding down, getting ready for Christmas. And this time next year, we'll be digesting what had happened to the World Cup final the day before. It's complete madness. It's down to the power of money mm. and uh, the power of sports washing. Like, last week, you know, it goes way beyond soccer. Like, I mentioned the way the, the last three Formula One Grand Prix were. Last week, there was a huge boxing conference in Dubai. You know, some of the most prominent... Uh, Promoters, managers, etc., in the world, like there's loads of photographs going around. And who, you know, a lot of the Daniel Kinnan is based in Dubai. A lot of those people who were there have have have, have said publicly that they've dealt with Daniel Kinnan in the past, and we know all about Daniel Kinnan and who he's who he is and what he is. But they don't care because of money, and that's that's like that's a big problem with sport, like. like it now looks like, like to many people, Liverpool are good guys because they don't spend that much money in, in terms of a net spend. But like the uber capitalist owners, uh, American owners who have no interest in the game, we're just there to make money. But just when now people are, are in a position where they're actually going, well, at least they don't have bone saws in their back pocket. Mm. And this is nuts, you know. It, 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 it is. I think the January though are a lot of people who want Newcastle United to be relegated. Absolutely, and I, I'd be one of them. And it's not because Eddie Howe seems a decent man, but like at, at the end of the day, you just you don't want teams like this to succeed. And Jonathan's article also goes into some like really questionable stuff that went on in Qatar in terms of a guy basically being put in jail for stuff that he said or may not have said. And it is well worth a read. We don't unfortunately have time to maybe go through so, some of the other stuff yeah. about that issue. But Kieran, um, what else do you like to go into? There was a very interesting article. Um, um, with Andy Friend, very interesting interview. Um, sorry, a very interesting piece about him in the Sunday Times. Yeah. We also have stuff about the IRFU and the women's game, which is a big hot topic at the moment. Yeah, well, I'll go to Andy Friend's uh, first. Because uh, it's referenced in here, but there was a great uh, Gary Doyle interview in the 42 with him recently. Mm. The guy I didn't know anything about, and just a, a very interesting way of operating and a very interesting background. And um, Likes you know, his Irish whiskey. 
He does, yeah. And he's uh, like he's lived in twenty five different homes all over the world. Like he very much, you know, this uh, like a lot of people from the southern hemisphere, he's got a kind of wanderlust and mm. just you know. I, I, like you know, when his contract is up, talking about just going off in a caravan or you know motorhome around Europe with his wife, you know, go off again. But that's the worry for Connacht as well, because as much as he likes Galway, which is obviously a great place to live and a place he obviously likes, there is that idea that his wanderlust will take him somewhere. Yeah, and uh, like I know some people might think, oh, this is a bit schmaltzy or just PR, mm. but you know, Peter Manchin's here. He will engage with club supporters on the pitch after games and on social media. He remembers people's names. Before last weekend's name, when a ball knocked a fan's beer from his grasp on the terraces, friend enlisted a steward to deliver some restorative vouchers, presumably vouchers for a couple more beers. This may sound like a publicity stunt, yet he never gives the impression that it's all about him. And it just comes across as a decency to him. Mm. And, you know, and, uh, uh, like he's had to deal, like any middle aged person, he's, you know, had to deal with difficult things in his life, like his wife. Uh, had um, serious a injury life after a life-threatening yeah. brain injury after falling from a bike uh, as his wife Kerry and a year earlier he witnessed a horrific tragedy in Durban when one of his players was knocked down in the early hours he never recovered but you know uh, you know he don't I guess he's the, it's the the that he's he able is. to contextualise sport in a sense that he's come through this and um, he knows like that sport isn't the be all and end all but he's a lovely lovely manner with his players yeah and uh, like you know, you go back to Pat Lamb, like Connacht have been lucky and some of the coaches have landed in that they've been really good people. Like, uh, like I remember Pat Lamb, like people might have thought it was a schmaltzy thing, but he'd always try and use some Irish words mm. in interviews on TG Carr and the rugby coverage. And I think it's just decency. Like, they just come across as good human beings. And, you know, Colin Sheridan has mentioned there, who, who writes for the Irish Examiner. That's right. Uh, and uh, his bikes, you know, I think he's a neighbour of uh, Andy Friend. And his bikes were assembled by him last Christmas Eve. You know, he was very handy with his hands. He bought bikes for his kids, and uh, Andy Friend helped him together. So it's worth a read. He's a nice guy. Lovely article, Timmy. Well, first of all, you, you get you get a sense of you know who he is, which comes across in the article. You know, the thing I really liked about it was just from the coaching point of view. The thing I picked up was um, he was recommended by John Kingston, who's an old coach in Norwegian, but. Um, he said, uh, in my opinion, coaching is 80% man manager and 20% knowledge, which is an interesting sort of definitive statement. To make. Would you agree with that? That, 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 I was, that was one thing that struck me about the article. Would you agree with that? Because that like, obviously contextualises a lot of where coaches might be going wrong. Well, I, well, I'm not sure I agree with the 80-20, but I agree that the majority of coaching is about is about man management, but you have to have the technical skills to coach. You, you know, you, you you have to have the technical ability to, to get your players to do you know what you believe is the right thing for for the program. So you know, whether it's eighty twenty or seventy five twenty five, I do believe Johnny that it, that it's a critical thing in that mm. sense. Um, and it's about but I the line I really love. It's about aspiring to bring the best out of people to bring people together, and that's what great coaches do or managers whatever title they have in different sports. They have the ability to set a vision, an expectation for the team and for the program, and get people to buy in. But I've always said, in any team I coach, Johnny, a team is made up of individuals. So the individual must perform to the best of their individual ability if you want the team to perform to the best of its ability. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we lose that. We, we say, no, the, the team is more important. The team is actually the ultimate situation that we're all striving for, for the team to be successful. But we can only be successful if we get the best out of each individual. 
and reading this article, you could see from the outside that friend has that ability to, to get the best out of, of, of the people he's, he's playing with. How long will he stay there? It's hard to know. But I mean, I think the thing he says is that, you know, he lives in the present, so he doesn't look too far ahead. So let's enjoy him while he's in the present. But I do believe his point about getting the best out of people is something all coaches and managers should be conscious of. Get them to be their best, and then the team will be a lot better if every individual performs their best. And if we if we stay with rugby, Kieran, the issue of um, the women's game in Ireland and the IRFU is unsurprisingly, um, apart from a couple of articles, Shane McGrath, the Mail, and um, Eamon Sweeney as well in the Sunday Independent. Now, I, I'm not I'm not the biggest rugby fan in the world, and I've I've gone to kind of a couple of women's rugby's game, women rugby games uh, throughout um, my lifetime, I guess. But Irish rugby is obviously you get the feeling that. From my perspective, I'd imagine for parents, like if I were a parent, I wouldn't want my any of my children playing rugby. Full stop. Right, and if 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 he or she, if it were a girl, I'd probably be even less inclined again. So I'm I'm suspecting. Now I haven't been reading much about this. I'm suspecting mm-hmm. that it's not that easy to get young girls to play rugby when there are a myriad of other sports. Yada yada. But just from reading today's couple of articles, Amy Sweeney in particular, it seems to me that the IRFU just don't really seem to care that much about it. What do you make of it? Yeah, well, there's a lot of um, there's a there's a huge amount of coverage of this across the board, and it all comes from you know 62 current and former uh, Ireland players sent a letter to the Minister for Sport expressing their lack of confidence in the IRFU management of women's rugby. And if you you can imagine that was 62 current and former male Ireland rugby players or Ireland soccer players, mm. the, the waves as we cause. So within that. Uh, you know, not bubble, but within that milieu, it's it's huge. It's obviously huge, and I think Eamon Sweeney, you know, gets it gets to the nub near of this near the end of the piece, and you know, just to declare an interest, the RT Sports Awards were last night. Rachel Blackmore got Sports Person of the Year, mm. and I, I was one of the judges for those awards. And six of the eight on the sports list were women, and you will see that in all the Incredible. reviews of the years. Yeah, that this was very much the year of women in Irish sport. Like, there's never been a year like it in terms of female success. But Amos Sweeney makes a very valid point here. He says rugby's played no part in that extraordinary year for a woman. He means its players have been on the outside looking in, just as there'll be next year. Just as there'll be next year when the World Cup takes place to the accompaniment of more publicity than ever before. The IRFU's ten-eared responses perhaps result in the complacency of an organisation which just isn't used to being criticised. That so many players were protest in such a public fashion is a major story, yet the response fell well short of what was required. And I thought that was a good point because, you know, you compare it to the FEI, has always taken a kicking. The GA regular takes a kicking, but the IRU is mostly praised. And when there is a bit of criticism, they re- reacted really badly mm. and with a very t- uh, tenured statement. But uh, he makes a good point just at the very end as well, Eamon, that both Irish Sport Ireland and the Federation of Irish Sports made no response to the rugby letter. You know, Sport Ireland have a responsibility, as he says, because they've given 18 million of extra state funding to the IRFU. So, you know, where are they on all this? You know, so I, I think there was a fair amount of coverage of this story over the week, but I think Eamon Sweeney summed up or he got to a few key points in that piece. Yeah. We have sort of 10 or 15 minutes left, so I'll, I'll leave it over to you, Timmy, what you want to get into next. There is an interesting article, Paul Rowan, in the front of the uh, Sunday Times where he's 
talks about growing tension um, in the uh, over the FEI um, basically spending of the COVID cash split and the money itself was um, 19 million 12 million going to the FEI 5 million to the League of Ireland the amateur game getting 2 million and uh, there's a quote here from Tony Gaines secretary of the North Dublin Schoolboy Girls League where he says it's ridiculous they're absolutely obsessed with the League of Ireland you'd think there is nothing else which is an extraordinary comment really uh, to make considering it's actually the professional game in this country I don't know if you read this Timmy or some of the other um, soccer related articles obviously pertaining to Stephen Kenny and his contract as well which still hasn't been signed which may have something to do with the fact that the CEO of our, of the FEI for the last 14 years or, or 14 months or whatever it is since he got the job hasn't actually moved to this country So I did read the article about the, the, the cash split and obviously you know, Tony Gaines gave a very emotional statement in that I think what was interesting in the article though is that um, the FEI was saying that Sport Ireland are deciding how the money is spent. Mm. They want to spend in the professional game, uh, so that's a very interesting um, point. That was that was sort of you know near the end of it of the article by Paul Rowan. You know that the Sport Ireland want the professional people to be getting. You know, we're really if you want to develop any sport, and I think one of the problems with the RF you have in the women's sport is you're developing it underage and having people coming through into a feeder channel seems to be a problem in the women's rugby game with the numbers they have. So. It was interesting that in that that the tension about the cash, the amateurs are getting less of it, and the FAI are saying that it's going down. Like if that is correct, I'd be surprised. I'd be surprised if that was correct. But um, it definitely is an issue that you know when you get 19 million quid, um, you'd expect the amateur game, which is the most dominant part of the game, to get more than you know two million, which is a, which is well, whatever, a small number of it. But this it then goes on to the Stephen Kenny the last uh, paragraph is about. Stephen Kenny, they've had initial talks. I wasn't aware that Jonathan Hill was still living, and even though I did read it in one of the articles that you know from 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 England the other day, he was asked the question. So, well, do, do you not find that extraordinary, Timmy? Like he's he's in the job over a year, yet he hasn't moved to Ireland. And I I understand like this is presumably making the contractual things a bit more difficult because like he lives in a different country to the manager. So I, I would say, in, in my experience professionally, you know, if you take on a new role in, in, in a new situation, like I moved from Cork to Athlone to set up a company uh, for the post office, you know, you, it's part of your of your expectation. If you're the chief executive, you move to the location where, where it is. Maybe COVID has exaggerated that, um, Johnny, in the sense that maybe he's mm. you know, had this, had the comfort of not moving while COVID was on. But it's unusual that he's not in Dublin. And uh, if he's planning to stay long time, uh, long term in the job, and that's another question, I suppose. But uh, you'd expect the chief executive to be domiciled in, in, in the country of, or, or the county of where his employment is. The Stephen Kenny one, it, it seems, Philip Quinn talks about it in the Mail on Sunday. Uh, it's a situation, he says, is a lot messier than it needs to be. Until they decide what they're going to do with Stephen Kenny, this is going to rumble on, in that sense. And, you know, they've got to make a decision. Do they want Stephen Kenny? Or do they not want Stephen? Well, I'd say, to be honest, Timmy, I'd say it seems like it's straightforward enough that he will be there until the end of the Euros. And I imagine it's it's more like the, the nuts and bolts of maybe how much money he's on and, and other little matters like that. But it, it must be complicated by the fact that the CEO does not live in this country. Well, I, I would say the fact he's not living in the country wouldn't complicate the negotiations because it's like we don't over um, video conferencing and whatever. But I think the big issue that it looks to be like little, little one-liners in, in the article on the Sunday Times at the very end, they want to streamline his large backroom staff, so mm. be a, a telling issue, and he made a point as well uh, in the Irish Mail on Sunday, you know, we've got to get resolve this issue with the staff, so maybe it's not Kenny's contact himself, maybe it's the fact that, you know, he's a large backroom staff mm. in, in the context and they want to stream that, but the reality is, you either back him 
or you don't back him. There's no in between. You can't say we want you to be the manager, but we don't want you to have your backroom staff. You know, we want you to trim that down. You either back the manager or you don't back him. And right now, that's where I see the, the, the split is in the tension is that, you know, they're they're still not fully convinced about Stephen Kenny, to, to, to my observation, and what they've got to decide. If we're going to back him, and I would back him at this point, I might back him. I give the guy what he wants and then let him get on with the job and hopefully, you know, get us to, to the championships in a couple of years' time. But then backroom staff could be their way out because ultimately then Kenny has a choice. If, he, if they don't give Kenny the backroom staff he wants, well, he has a choice to make. So, mm. you know, there could be a bit of games which going on between both sides. What right else? Now, from the outside. What else you got, Karen? What else have I got? Uh, let me see. Uh, just on that, uh, Johnny, I think ultimately that's ju- that's about money. You know? I would say I say it probably is. Yeah, like it's just uh, like I don't think the backroom staff is that much bigger, if, if at all, than under Martin O'Neill or or maybe under Giovanni Trapattoni. I think the complexity of it is that obviously Kenny is looking for a deal that has a time frame in it, and then if you look at the likes of Anthony Barry, obviously he's his day job yeah. at Chelsea, so there are complexities there. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. And I see I mean, the big difference now is that uh, Dennis O'Brien isn't paying for the manager and the system manager. They're mm. paying a large chunk of it. And now they have to come up with the money themselves. And I would have think there's been quite a bit of coverage of Anthony Barry in the UK over the last month. And his star is rising all the time. And if, if Chelsea won the Premier League, which it could well do, it will rise even more. So holding on to him won't be easy. And it might come down to money. So... I think, you know, from all that's come out, Kenny, they want Kenny to stay. But I think they're looking to make cuts elsewhere. That's my guess. No. Yeah. Uh, and no, j- go ahead, sorry, here. Uh, sorry, you wanted uh, uh, just where I was going to go to Tyke Leader in the Mail on Sunday, an interview with Mark Gallagher. And he's somebody I, I wouldn't be familiar with, but he's a former. Uh, rugby player, you know, came through the ranks of Connacht, but now he's trying to make it as a kicker in American football. Like it just, you know, it took it up at the sport for the first time at 28. And this, uh, I was a bit surprised at this because it must be something in the water in Galway. Because two weeks ago, I interviewed a guy called Shane McInerney. I don't know if you know him uh, from Balnaslow, uh Johnny, but he 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 would have played underage for Ireland with John Egan. He would have been in Merview with Darl Horgan. Wow! But he went. To, yeah, he yeah. I mean, we one of the hurling McInerneys, you know, a cousin of Gerald McInerney, nephew of Jerry McInerney from the eighties. But but <clears throat> he, he he ended up playing professionally in the US, Sweden, and Australia. But I think it was during the first lockdown or the second lockdown, he moved back home. And for something to do, he got a couple of American footballs. He started practicing it. He got YouTube videos, etc. And he found he was good at it. And he, he got in touch with a coach, uh, a kicking coach. And the coach told him, sell yourself on Twitter, put up a few videos of yourself kicking on Twitter. But scouts look at that. And from that, he was he got a, a, a college scholarship. And he, he took 42 uh, kicks in the season that's just ended. And he nailed 40 of them. That is incredible. He, yeah, he kicked the ball for the first time at 29. And he's now, he's provisionally put, put, put down as one of the draft picks for 2023. And this is a guy kicking up this board to 2029, uh, sorry. And he told me that this first game, he was deciding a guy had been kicking for 10 years. And he said to him, you tell me when I have to go on to kick. I don't know the rules. And he didn't know the kicker. He didn't know the kickers also would t- take the kickouts. But Tide Leader is a similar story in that he's a former rugby player. He's now making waves as a kicker. And he took it up at 28. 
And he said, you know, he's made the point there, though, that this is a huge opportunity for people in Irish sport. You know, there's a couple that have been over in Gaelic football uh, before. Uh, there he is, very Irish looking as well, if I may say so. He is very Irish, yeah. And like there have been approaches made to like there was approaches made to Ronan O'Gara in the past to Morris Fitzgerald but it's such a specialised position for some reason it's not, a, it's not a skill that comes easy to a lot of American young American kids but it comes very naturally to uh, uh, to Irish uh, mm. athletes and like it's a, it is a very pressurised position because you know uh, as, as Tyke says if a kicker misses a field goal in the last quarter where do they go it's how the game will be remembered I talked to some of the kickers in the NFL, and they say it's like being a sniper. You have one shot, you have to get it right. Ninety percent mental, ten percent physical. It's about staying in the moment and being ready, even though you may be sitting down for two full quarters. You know, which is a very interesting role in professional sport. Yeah, I think we all remember laces out in Ace Ventura and the pressure on the kicker. And um, before we go, we've only a couple of minutes left. What are you looking forward to over the Christmas? Me, Johnny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I hope what I'm looking forward to I hope sport keeps going mm. you know because uh, and with crowds because uh, it's funny I, I saw just some clips of goals from last season in, in some programme during the week and you forget how bad sport was oh, I was fans. so fed up by the, by the end yeah, like. like you actually forget God it was awful like you just may do with it but it makes such a difference so I hope that somehow they find a way to keep going and keep going with fans same, same as what about you Timmy yeah, I, I, I would echo Kieran's sentiments. I really hope sports keeps going. I hope the sentence comes and brings everything that we all want for Christmas in that sense. For me, I have a few simple sporting requests. Chelsea win the Premiership, the World Cup Championship, the FA Cup, the Champions League, and the League Cup. But on that, somebody else can win everything else. But at, least you're not, at least you're not greedy, Tim. Yeah. Yes, it is. You know, it's a, well, if you, set your, if you set your standard high, you might sneak one of them. I actually, <laughs> but if people wanted them right now, would you believe, Kieran? I, and Johnny, I think the World Cup championship. Yeah, yeah. It's the only trophy that Chelsea haven't won. Um, yeah. the, last, the last time on the Benito was when he played David yeah. Luiz uh, midfield. So it's the one I'd like, if there would have been one, I'd like to win that in that sense. But look, I really want sport to keep going. I really want people to be safe. You know, I would encourage people, you know, to make sure that do whatever it needs to be safe. And that, you know, just as I said, wish everyone a happy Christmas and look forward to Chelsea again in sport and other things. Yeah, and whatever about the Glazers and these questionable Arab states, at least you can say you can't say anything about Chelsea's ownership. It's, it's proper, it's good, and we all love Rome. Ah, Johnny, completely, completely. <laughs> thanks a million for coming on. Good to see you, Johnny. Um, thanks, Johnny. Thanks. Happy you Christmas to the two lads, and happy Christmas to you as well. Uh, that was the Sunday paper review, and uh, yeah, we shall be back uh, after Christmas. The Sunday papers on off the ball.